But I also have to say, for anyone who's been in this position where it's like the first Sunday they get to preach after they've just been selected as a new pastor, the last thing they want to preach about is politics. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so um, in the last two weeks, I've had people come and say that I must preach about this. Um, especially Proposal 3, because it's the most pressing issue right now in Michigan. I've had people come and say that I should not speak about it because it's inappropriate and it will turn people away from the church. I had one person very politely ask if they could speak about it. And um, so I've had to grapple with this issue that, frankly, I don't want to deal with. And as I grappled in prayer about this, what kept coming to me is that I'm not accountable to what my friends think or what people outside the church think who may get offended or even what people inside the church may think who might get offended. But I'm accountable to God. He's the one who gave me this gift of preaching. He's the one who gave me this platform. And I have to be accountable to preach his whole word, not just the parts I like or the parts that other people like. So I'm going to do my best attempt to do that this Sunday. And I know I won't cover everything. I can't cover everything in one sermon, but I'll do my best. Um, as I look at this issue of, of abortion and the upcoming election just in general, there are five biblical principles that... I found that relate. And and I know some of you, you're, you're not going to listen to all five. You're just going to sit there and wait. Like, is she going to say it? Is she going to say what I want her to say? I just ask you to please try to listen to all five principles before you make your judgment call. The first principle is that God sometimes leads his people to vote differently. I know that sounds crazy, but it happens in the Bible. Um, sometimes it's because one group is in rebellion and not listening to God, but not always. Sometimes it's because God's plan is so big and mysterious and unfathomable that this group discerns this little sliver of his plan, and this group discerns this little sliver of God's plan, and that leads to them voting differently, but somehow God's will is accomplished through it all anyways. And so I'll give you an example of that in a bit. The next biblical principle is that knowing that Jesus refused to set up a political kingdom when his followers wanted him to. We need to be careful with our use of politics to advance his kingdom. Um, and different Christians will draw the line at different places of how much to use politics to try to force people into a moral lifestyle that they may or may not agree with. And there's no clear-cut answer in regards to this, there's good arguments on both sides. I'm going to try to do justice to both sides of that issue. The next principle, be quick to listen, 
slow to speak, and slow to be angry. We have so few of our political leaders modeling this for us today. What is modeled more often is refusing to listen, talking over, and trying to drown out the other party, even like during debates, and just jumping to conclusions and getting angry. And, and so today I'm going to try to model a different approach where we listen to both sides and we are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, all right? The fourth principle is that God's word highly values human life, including unborn life and the lives of women. There are so many stories and verses about this in the Bible. I cannot touch on all of them, but I'll give you some. I'll touch on a couple, and I'll I'll give you some to look up, okay? The last principle is we are to honor and pray for our governing officials, no matter how ungodly they may seem. And that is what we are going to end our service doing, all right? So, let's start with the first principle. God sometimes leads his people to vote differently. There's a few examples of this in scripture. But the ultimate example is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if none of the God-fearing Jews had voted to crucify Jesus? It wasn't pagans who voted. It was Jews who thought they were doing God's will. Where would we be today if they hadn't voted to crucify Jesus? I want to read to you from John 11. I have it on the screen here. This takes place right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so lots of people saw that miracle and were flocking to him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They had correctly perceived that Jesus' followers wanted him to lead a revolution, a revolt against the Roman Empire and free Israel from Rome's control. They also correctly perceived that whenever somebody tried to do this, the Romans would just come in and destroy everybody. And in fact, um, about 40 years after Jesus, there was a Jewish leader who tried to do this. He started a revolt, and the Romans came in, they destroyed the temple, and over a million Jews were killed. So the Pharisees are rightly concerned about this happening. Next verse. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied, he got a prophecy from God that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but for all the scattered children of God, 
to bring them together and make them one. Is that a true prophecy? Yeah, it's a true prophecy. And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So this stands in sharp contrast to Jesus' disciples who knew him best, who loved him the most, and rightly could see that it was ethically wrong for Jesus to die. He did not deserve death. But then you have the Pharisees who have perceived a little different part of God's plan. And they're both right and they're both wrong. You have disciples who are right that Jesus is God's son and he doesn't deserve death, but they're wrong when they rebuke him and say, no, Jesus, you're not supposed to die. You have Pharisees that are wrong that Jesus isn't God's son, but they are right that he needs to die. Sometimes God's plan is just too mysterious and too huge that we simply cannot fathom it all. And we must trust that when other Christians respond in a different way to the little sliver of God's plan that they see, that God is ultimately going to bring about his will no matter what. Can you imagine how the disciples felt when their fellow Jews voted to crucify Jesus? He's the son of God. How can you say you love God when you're voting to kill his son? And yet, this is what we do to one another. When Christians vote differently than we vote, we question the sincerity of their faith. When I look at the crucifixion of Christ... I realize that God may move upon some people, including even his followers, to vote in ways that are completely incomprehensible to me. And I have to respect that and not despair when elections do not go the way I think best. Because I know ultimately God is in control and he has this long-term plan for justice that I just cannot understand. And so that's why, as your pastor, I will not be telling you how to vote. I will teach you biblical principles, and I will let you grapple with them, and I will respect the decisions that you make. Our next biblical principle. Knowing that Jesus refused to use political power, we must carefully weigh our own use of power, political power. So Jesus' followers thought he was going to save them by overthrowing the Roman Empire. That's why they shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna is actually a military word for save us, save us from oppression. And um, that's why the Pharisees got so alarmed. They weren't wrong about the political intentions of Jesus' followers. Um, But Jesus... He refused to start a political kingdom like his followers wanted him to. He told them to pay their taxes. When he was asked if he was the king of the Jews, in other words, the top political leader of the Jews, he said that his kingdom was not of this world. Instead of setting up a political 
physical kingdom where external laws force people to do his will, which he absolutely could have done. Jesus came to start an unseen spiritual kingdom where people would obey him because his law is written on their hearts. And it talks about this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 33. And the exact same verse you can also find in Hebrews 8, 10. It says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus' followers, they wanted to set up Israel like it was in the Old Testament. Where there's these laws written on stone. And they were a political kingdom. Well, that never worked. If you read the Old Testament, it never worked. They never could follow God's law. And, and so I really believe the Old Testament, part of why we have that in our Bible is to show the futility of political kingdoms forcing people to do God's will. And instead, the new plan, the new covenant is God will write his law on people's hearts. And just like Jesus' first disciples, we yearn for a physical kingdom we can see instead of the spiritual kingdom that is unseen. So the question remains, as followers of Jesus Christ, how much should we seek after and use political power to force people to do God's will? There's no doubt that throughout history, when Christians have sought and used political power, to force people to do what they thought was God's will, the church has become very corrupt. The Roman Emperor Constantine was the first to do this on a broad scale when he became converted, and he ordered everyone in the empire had to be converted and act like a Christian. And this was good because it stopped the persecution of Christians. But it was also bad because it fundamentally changed Christianity. Before Constantine, Christianity was this radical way of life that people could not ignore. It was such a bright light because you have Christians who are being persecuted and abused, and yet they're forgiving and they're loving and they're serving. And it was growing so rapidly. Because people were so drawn to the love of the Christians. After Constantine, Christianity became kind of this watered-down, just palpable, meh kind of existence. That where there's no deep conviction and, and it just kind of appeased everybody. Furthermore, narcissists realized the only way to achieve their political ambitions was to become a Christian. And so very corrupt people began outwardly acting like Christians in order to gain political power. So they could achieve their own ambitions, and the church became very corrupt. This is how the Crusades happened. This is how the Spanish Inquisition happened. Where millions of people were killed in the name of Christ. The same thing happened in Nazi Germany. 
The same thing happened with the pilgrims who came to found our nation. They were Christians actually fleeing persecution from Christians with political power in Europe. It had gotten so bad that Christians weren't just persecuting unbelievers. They were persecuting other Christians. And that's why the current movement of Christian nationalism that is gaining traction in U.S. politics, it gravely concerns me. Because it smacks more of political ambition than of humble surrender and sacrificial obedience to Jesus Christ. As imitators of Jesus Christ, Stephen preached about this last Sunday with Philippians 2. Jesus Christ, who had all the rights, all the privilege, and he laid them down, coming from earth to be a servant. As imitators of him, we must be very careful about using politics to force our will on others. All right, now for the other side of the argument. Even though... I believe the Bible clearly demonstrates that it is God's heart to woo people to him through love and grace. And that's how people's lives are transformed. He does sometimes use political power to accomplish his will. And the fact remains that if Christians had not taken a political stance on slavery... Black people could be still enslaved in the South to this day. The Civil War was preceded by a great revival. And part of that revival is Christians became convicted that they needed to stand up and fight for their neighbors in the South. One of the things that most astounds me about that time period is preceding that revival, the Second Great Awakening, is how Christians in the South stayed silent about slavery or even justified it. And many times, when I am told reasons as a pastor that I should stay silent about hot topic issues, those reasons sound similar to the historical reasons people told pastors in the South to stay quiet about slavery. Pastor, if you speak about that, people will leave our church. Pastor, if you, if my friend knows it's your political position, he'll never come to church. He'll never hear the gospel and the good news about Jesus Christ. You know, Pastor, yeah, okay, we know we shouldn't abuse slaves. We know that. But we can't set them free. Our economy would collapse. Families would become impoverished and suffer. This one, too, another historical reason, clearly documented. Well... We can't set them free because it's not good for them because they could never make it on their own. And their lives would be too hard. That was a very common justification. And it kind of sounds similar to a very common reason I hear today. 
that some children shouldn't be free to live because nobody wants to take care of them and their lives are going to be too hard. All these reasons sound kind of similar to me. And so I hold these two things in tension. And I think a lot of Christianity is about holding things in tension. Law and grace. Right? And and here we have on the one side that when Christians use political power to force their will on others, it leads to corruption. And on this side we have that there are sometimes as Christians we're called to make a political stand, especially to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. And I have to constantly weigh these things. And I try to respect Christians who weigh these things differently than I do. All right, for our third principle... James 1, 19-20 says this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. What has grieved my heart in the last few years is that so many Christians have taken the exact opposite attitude as this towards politics. And we have cheered on leaders who do the exact opposite of this, who refuse to listen, who shout over their opponents, who drown people out, who are quick to get angry. And we even imitate their behavior. God's word is very clear that that kind of behavior does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So, I want to set before you a different model today. Um, That's consistent with God's command to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I'm going to read proposal three. And I will list one argument against it and one argument for it. And I'm sure if you are against it, you will be tempted to get upset when I list an argument for it. And if you are for it, you'll be tempted to get upset when I list an argument against it. But I want to give you the opportunity to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So, Proposal 3, it's an amendment, not a law, it's an amendment to the state constitution by which all past and future laws regarding abortion will be either deemed constitutional or unconstitutional. And that's why it's such a big deal, because it affects not only the laws on our books now, but it could invalidate or validate any future laws. And here's the exact text of the proposal. Establish new individual right to reproductive freedom, including right to make and carry out all decisions about pregnancy, such as prenatal care, childbirth, postpartum care, contraception, sterilization, abortion, 
miscarriage management, and infertility. Allows state to regulate abortion after fetal viability, but not prohibit it if medically needed to protect a patient's life or physical or mental health. Forbids state discrimination and enforcement of this right. Prohibit prosecution of an individual or a person helping a pregnant individual for exercising rights established by this amendment. Invalidate state laws conflicting with this amendment. All right. Um, now for just one argument against it. Some legal experts say it is a red flag that it says to establish a new individual right instead of a woman's right. They say by saying an individual right, it means not only women, but also girls and even boys. Um, it could practice and seek an abortion or sterilization without parental consent. And this, of course, alarms a lot of people because, you know, at school, the, the nurse can't even give my son an aspirin <laughs> without my consent. But that kids could go and have these kinds of surgeries without parental consent is, is alarming. And so people would be like, why would anybody write this into a state amendment constitution? Like, like who would do such a thing? Well, there's a lot of debate on if that's what it actually means. But also, the other side of the argument has to do with honor killings. Some people in Michigan come from cultures that still practice honor killings, which, frankly, are not honorable at all. Um, those cultures believe that if a girl gets pregnant outside of marriage, her father and brothers should kill her to save the family honor. My friend Julie used to work in Grand Rapids, um, helping rescue girls and put putting them in safe houses who were in danger because of honor killings. I know that kind of blows your mind. You didn't think that happens here. It, it does. Um, and so the argument becomes that for the girl's safety, she needs to be able to get an abortion before her parents even know that she's pregnant. Now, you may not agree with that solution or what this amendment proposes. But I hope you can hear the heart of the people who propose it. Sometimes we refuse to listen to the other side because, especially in politics, we already know what they've proposed. And so we just drown them out and we don't listen to their rationale. And when we don't listen to their rationale, we don't hear their hearts or even the problem they're trying to address. And if we don't listen to the problem, then we can't be part of a better solution. We need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry so that we can be part of the very best solution. Okay, so there's way more to unpack about Proposal 3. I mean, almost line by line, people disagree on what this proposal actually does. And I just encourage you to read it. Google arguments against it. Google arguments for it. 
and actually listen. And then prayerfully make your decision. Let's move on to our fourth principle. God highly values human life, including unborn human life and the lives of mothers. In Genesis, we're told that humans are unique over all creation because we are made in the image of God. And that makes human life sacred and set apart for God. When God gives Adam and Eve dominion over the earth and he tells them to rule the earth, he tells them to rule over the birds and the fish and the creatures and the ground. But notably, he does not give them dominion over human life. He's very specific in all the other forms of life that they can rule over, but human life is not one of them. One of the most popular pro-choice arguments is my body, my choice. It's my body. I can choose to do with it what I want. And, And this makes sense. From an unbeliever's standpoint. But as Christians, it's not an argument that's available to us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us point blank, your body is not your own. You were bought at a price. If we have accepted Jesus' salvation, part of that is we have let him buy our bodies with his blood. The price of his blood. And it is no longer ours. It is his. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we must honor God with our bodies. Not only are we not given dominion over human life, there's several verses that speak to the value for unborn life and the lives of mothers. I have a slide that lists them. Um, I read several of these about, I don't know, a month ago in a totally different sermon not related to abortion. Um, But verses that God forms us in our mother's wombs include Job 31.15 and Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. There's verses that talk about how God has a planned purpose for us before we are born. Some of them say before we're even conceived. Those include Judges 13, Verses 2 through 5, Isaiah 49, verses 1 and 5, Jeremiah 1, 5, Galatians 1, 15, Luke, pretty much the whole first chapter of Luke, uh, but specifically verses 13 through 17 and 31 through 34 talk about um, God having plans for John the Baptist and Jesus before they're even conceived. Um, and there's other, there's other verses too. That's just what I could fit on one slide. Um, But throughout scripture, we see that God has a plan for and values unborn human life. There are also many stories of how God values women, especially poor single moms. I don't have time to go through all of them, but one of the most troubling and touching is from Genesis in the story of Hagar, who was enslaved, trafficked, raped, became pregnant, and then was abandoned, left in the desert, penniless as a single mom with her son. And she's on the verge of death. 
And God sees her. He speaks to her. He provides for her and her son. And her son eventually becomes a very strong and wealthy man and the father of many nations. People often place value, either more value on the life of the mother or more value on the life of the unborn child, but this is something that Scripture never does. Throughout Scripture, we see that God values both lives equally. Exodus 21, verse 22. Uh, This is right after the Ten Commandments. When men strive or fight together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, um, the Hebrew word there is yatsa, and um, it means to come forth. And it's used over a thousand times in the Bible. It can be the water coming forth from the rock or armies coming forth to battle or children being born. It just means come forth. And this word gets abused um, for politics. <laughs> Pro-choice people um, will translate it so that her children are miscarried, but there is no harm. Meaning that if you miscarry, there's no harm done. So it shows that God doesn't value the unborn life. Well, first of all, there's other words in the Bible for miscarry. Um, one of them's used just two chapters later. But secondly, there's no way you can ever look at a woman who has miscarried and say, oh, you're okay, so there's no harm done. No. That's a mistranslation of the word. Pro-life people translate the word, and the NIV does that, which is why I'm not using the NIV. I usually like the NIV. Um, so that her children are born prematurely. It doesn't mean that either. There's nothing about Yatza that is time-stamped. It just means when her children come forth. Maybe that's right away. She gets hit and, is, and they're born prematurely. Maybe she's waiting for three months, not knowing if being hit damaged her child or not. It just means... Come forth. So that her children come forth, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as a woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Meaning, if you hit a pregnant woman, even if it does no damage to her or the baby, you just can't get away with it. You're still going to at least pay a fine. Next verse. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Um, and I, I read a lot of commentary on this verse in the past week. And pro-choice people will say that harm is referring to the woman. And if there's been harm done to the woman... And pro-life people will say, no, that harm is referring to the child. And if there's harm done to the unborn child, when the child comes forth, you see, and then the judgment is passed. And over and over again, I'm just reading people on one side or the other side, and I'm like, God, why didn't you specify? 
make this simple. Why don't you specify if it's a woman or if it's a child? And then it just hit me like a lightning bolt. Because I meant both. Because I meant both. The Bible holds the mother and the unborn child's life in equal value. Now, what if the unborn child's life, the pregnancy, threatens the mother's life? What then? There is not one specific verse in the Bible that deals with this, but there's lots of principles and themes and I spent hours researching this. As far back in history we can go, we can see how Jewish rabbis taught about that. We can see how Christian leaders from the very earliest taught about what to do in that situation. We even have documentation from Roman historians about what Jews and Christians would practice in that situation. The documents from Roman historians are very interesting because they talk about um, how Jews, well, abortion, frankly, was very common in the, in the Roman Empire. It was, it was just so common. People would, um, uh, historians say that people would, you know, abort because they didn't want to feed the baby um, or share an inheritance with the baby. Some were sacrificed in different temples. Often ch- children were just left in city dumps to die by exposure. And Roman historians know that the Jews did none of these things and um, were radically just for the life of children. And they, they were annoyed by it because Jewish population would grow so rapidly compared to other populations. Which, of course, reminds me of Exodus. We hear the same thing there, that the Egyptians were alarmed by how quickly the Jews' population was growing. And you think about it, they were, the Jews, they were slaves. You, you would think, well, maybe they would say, I don't want to bring a child into this. The child's going to be born a slave and they're going to be abused. And so maybe they would kill their children. When No, the Jews never practiced that. Christians either. The Roman historians talked about Christians and how Christians had the same attitude. And Christians would even go to the dumps and search and hunt for the children, the infants, and adopt them and take care of them. But we hear it from Roman historians and we hear it from Jewish rabbis and our earliest church fathers that wrote down sermons that when a pregnancy threatened the life of a mother... They viewed the unborn child as the one who was the aggressor, the taker of life. The mother is giving life, the child is taking life. And because of that, the child's life was sacrificed to save the mother in an act of self-defense. And that's what the Jews always taught and practiced, and that's what Christianity has always taught and practiced. And so 
first of all, I just want to say, if you have had to go through that, I'm so sorry. No woman should be put in that horrible position. But I also want to say that before God, you are innocent. There is no shame. There is no guilt. Tremendous grief for your loss, yes. But no shame. And I think sometimes in evangelical Christian churches, we have been guilty of raising the life of the unborn child so high that we devalue the life of the mother. And you just need to know that's not historical Christianity and that's not biblical. For women who have chosen abortion for other reasons. I just want to say, for everyone, no matter what we have done in our past, and all of us have done things in our past, no matter what we have done or for what reasons, Jesus always extends grace and forgiveness. And hope for healing and restoration and a blessed future. And the church should be the one place that we can come together. No matter what we have experienced. No matter what we have done. And find grace and healing through Jesus Christ. All right, it's time to end with the last principle. Now we're to honor and pray for all of our governing officials. There's some verses about that. First Peter 2 is significant because Peter was writing to Christians when Nero was the Roman Empire who um, tortured Christians. And, and I just have to say, you know, what you have suffered under Governor Whitmer or Joe Biden or Donald Trump just doesn't even remotely compare to what ancient Christians suffered. And yet they were commanded and practiced honoring and praying for their governing officials. And so we're going to end by praying for our governing officials, for the upcoming election, and for each other. All right? Father... Sometimes it's very hard to distinguish between the, our culture and our Christianity. And the messages that our culture has given us since the moment we've entered this world and, and what your word 
speaks to us. And so I just pray that we will make room for your word. I know even as I prepared this message, I was convicted over things. And God, I pray that we would be people who imitate you. And Jesus Christ, who did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. taking the very nature of a servant and becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. God, help us imitate your son Jesus and help us give grace to each other and also to ourselves. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us receive the grace that you offer us. And the healing that you offer us. And God, I pray that you help us be wise and, and not just oversimplify very complex and difficult issues. I pray that we will be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I pray that our governing officials will be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. God, I think of your word that talks about how the hearts of kings are in your hand and you sift them like streams of water. And I just pray, God, that you will direct the hearts of our leaders in our local government, our school boards, Lord. That has become such a thankless job. pray you encourage those who are serving our communities as school board members and I pray you direct their hearts and give them discernment as they lead our schools I pray for our our congressmen and women both at the state and federal level that they would surrender and submit to you they have so many pressures So many of them are bought, Lord Jesus. I pray you set them free. I pray you set them free. And you open their eyes and hearts that they may listen to your spirit and follow your will. I pray for this also for the leaders in our executive branch, God. Our governor, our president, our vice president, and all the officials that serve under them. Lord, I pray there would be a softening of their hearts 
toward one another and towards people on the other side of the political aisle. Lord, I pray they would see the futility of refusing to listen to one another and just thinking that they can just beat each other and elect enough people so they can get their own way. God, I pray that you will give them the spirit of cooperation and unity. We know that unity only comes from you, the triune God who lives in perfect unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us to live in unity and to value one another as you do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.